it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hello, welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening and watching yesterday. I was in Ponte Vedra at the Metro Diner. Uh, WOKV listeners uh, know how great it is to be out there. I left 82 degrees and, of course, a two-hour delay. And not uh, JetBlue's fault. It, was, uh, it is JFK's fault. Uh, the, the airport's not big enough. I'm not sure why we're still wrestling with air, uh, air travel. Uh, Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour, and that's one of my first things for uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, the governor slash ambassador, great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. If you become president, will you solve the air travel uh, travel problem? Why do we have? Why is it always keep your fingers crossed now when you fly around? Because, it's amazing because they protect all of these airlines. They protect the airports, and they never watch out for the consumer. And at some point, you have to have them say what's in the best interest of the consumer, not what's in the best interest of the company. It's got to be dealt with, and no one has done it because it's so big. But that goes back into corporate welfare and all those other things. Like you can't keep protecting big companies and. And big industry, you've got to start really thinking about what the taxpayers think. I would love to see that. I'll put it this way. I'd love to see a transportation secretary that actually rolled his sleeves up and said, let me solve this problem. I have a degree from Oxford. I'm pretty good at figuring things out, even though I'm not a transportation expert. But you have an overall lack of hustle. So congratulations. For the first time we've spoken, uh, I think we did on television, satellite, uh, on radio, though. So over the last three weeks, what's your big takeaway now that you made the announcement official? The biggest takeaway, I think, is that people are ready to move on. They're ready to do they're ready to have options. They're ready to go forward. They want to leave the drama and the status quo of the past, and they want to move forward. And, you know, they really want to focus on things that matter. They, you know, I have said we have to have term limits in D.C. They gr- agree. I've said we have have to have mental competency tests for people over the age of 75. They agree. I have said that as president, I will stop all this foreign aid and stop right. giving money to countries that hate us. They agree, and they want to really focus on things. You know, Brian, 50 percent of Americans don't think their kids are going to have it as good as they had. Think how sad that is. Right. We can't be okay with that. So uh, also – the last five polls show that uh, President Trump's on top. Second, pretty consistent is uh, DeSantis. Then you uh, and and Tim Scott are neck and neck. So how is President Trump's numbers? Why are his numbers so high? Well, Still under fifty percent, but um, but he's got he's he's leading in all the polls. Well, the last I checked, um, there was only a couple of us in the race. So I don't pay attention to anybody that's not in. Um, because I knew I was running. I got in. I was ready, and I'm not waiting on anything or anybody. So we're there. But I think, look, there's a respect for what President Trump did. People know that he was the right president at the right time. He broke the things that needed to be broken, and he fixed them. The issue is people now want more options than than just Trump and Biden, Mm -hmm. and they don't think you have to be 80 years old to be in D.C., and I think they want to see us move forward, and that's what we're trying to do. And just uh, by the numbers, Emerson Poll, which tends to lean left, whatever that means, but they did all Republicans. They found Trump with a 30-point lead over uh, DeSantis. The Yahoo News YouGov poll has an eight-point lead. Him over DeSantis, with you a solid third. And the GOP, uh, the poll for, trying to see the company here, uh, another poll has uh, him up by 15. So him going to Palestine put 
President Trump back in the news again. It, it, you know, look, why wasn't Biden there? Still the one thing been. I know from being a governor and having a school shooting and a church shooting and hurricanes and all those things, you have to be with your people immediately. You stop everything and you go be with your people and you take your cabinet directors with you so that you're immediately taking care of those people. I don't understand when you have an issue on the border and they won't go. You have an issue in East Palestine and they don't go. That literally is the goal of a leader is you are there to protect your people, to take care of them, to make sure that every need they have is there. He's missed that on every front from Afghanistan to the border to East Palestine, all of those things. Yet he'll sit there and brag about some economy numbers that don't exist. So what bothers me most is two things. Number one, if you want to be president, that's what you want to do. You want to help people. Yes. Number two, if it's not unless it's about your ego. Number two is if it's a minority community and that train spills off in that area and they blow it up because they said that was the best option. And now they're saying with independent studies, there's now a chemical in the air and they're seeing all these physical problems, uh, the respiration problems that they have. I think he has a totally different stance, in my opinion. You know, we had a train derailment in South Carolina, and I will tell you, you don't know the effects of those chemicals until later. It's in the air. It's in the water. It's in the ground. All of that. And these families need to know someone has their back. And he's not doing anything. He's talking about other things. And I'm telling you, you just continue to look at what Biden's doing. He's living in a fantasy world. He continues to be the reason I say you have to have mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. These issues are too important and our crises are too big to not have somebody at the top of their game. So yesterday he was talking health care in Virginia Beach. Here's a little of it. Cut 24. There's an awful lot of really good Republicans, but the MAGA Republicans are a different breed of cat. No, they're not bad or good. They're just very, they're very different. It's kind of like, in my view, sort of two Republican parties. Where do you stand? And would you, would you, uh, would you subscribe to there are two Republican parties? No, it's insulting. I mean, Republicans are patriotic. Republicans want economic freedom. Republicans want safety. Republicans want to be able to know that their kids will live a better life than them. That's not to sit there and try and divide us is wrong. Republicans have solutions that help everyone, not just a select few. And Biden knows that. And he continues to try and do this to criticize a certain segment of the Republican Party. A president doesn't criticize their people. A president communicates solutions and gets them there. He's never done that. Even when he wants to win re-election, because we do know that President Obama did that pretty effectively to Mitt Romney. Made him seem to be an out-of-touch white guy that just wants to destroy companies and lives. I think Americans are smarter than that, and I think we'll see that in 2024. They're done with all of this drama, and they're done with the weakness that America is showing right now. They want something different. When you watch the State of the Union address, which uh, President Biden's uh, supporters say was a big win for him, uh, I don't feel that way because what happened is the place erupted when he said Republicans want to take your Medicare and your Social Security away, which was not true. Uh, but they reacted and people started yelling, that's not true. And then he said, OK, we negotiated right here. Here's what he described yesterday. Because do you want to take the Medicare and Social Security away? No. But do you think entitlements need to be reformed? Absolutely. And what we should do is make sure the people who have it and who were promised it get it. But that new generation coming in, we've got to change the rules for them because they know they're not going to get it anyway. Right. And a couple of things. I, I know it's it's politically toxic. But we when you came up with Social Security, we were, the, we were living – we're now living 15 years longer. You have to raise the age. If you say raise the age, people say, well, you just lost all your seniors. Maybe you got to get the job to do it or maybe set up a, a blue ribbon 
counselor to do it, but don't we have to raise the age? We have to look at entitlement reform. The biggest thing you want to do is you don't want to take away what's been promised to people. That is, I Especially dealt, money they put in. I dealt with pension reform in South Carolina. We had the same problem. What we did is we made sure everybody who was promised got, but the new group coming in, we, we changed the rules for them. And that's where you look at what that cutoff is. And it can be done. And there's not just one thing you do. There's multiple things you do. But yes, I mean, to say you're not going to touch entitlement reform is not being visionary. It's not really looking to the troubles that we're going to have in the future if we don't deal with it. We'll run out in 2028. Right. Uh, and I'd love to see someone's answer to that. Cut 26. I said, okay, you know, kind of everybody who says we're not going to cut Medicare or Social Security, when I asked them to join us and reject the cuts, Medicare, wasn't it something? They all stood up. They all stood up. And they're all on camera. <laughs> Got all their pictures. Like I said, I believe in conversion. Maybe they found, as my grandfather's, maybe they found religion on Social Security and Medicare. And, of course, he's leaning on what Rick Scott came out and said we should take a look at all these things and sunset them because they need to be reevaluated because – but Washington never cuts a program. That's his point. Which he's demeaning and he's lying. He knows they did this in the midterms when they sat there and said, you know, all Republicans want to ban abortion across the board. They're doing this now by saying all Republicans want to go and take your Social Security away. That's not true. And we watched Obama do it. We watched Biden do it. They think if they say it enough that it, it will make it true and that people will believe it. Republicans have to push back. Republicans have been too nice, too nice. Go back, push back, put him in his corner, show where he's lying, show where he's wrong, show what he's done and fight him on it. And I think that Republicans have to step up. The people are begging for us to fight back. So uh, I know we're talking with uh, Governor slash Ambassador Nikki Haley. I know you always parry it to Biden. Whatever it is, I'm running against Joe Biden. But is that going to be possible as more and more declare Vivek Ramaswamy is the latest Tim Scott looks like he could be next. Mike Pompeo, I would say in the spring, I'd be hard to I don't know anybody doing the Tom Cotton thing and saying my kids are too young. I can't do it. So for the most part, as they do it, how much longer can you hold out and hold your fire against other Republicans? It's not about holding fire. It's about being productive. Americans are tired. They want to know someone's going to work for them, not sit there and fight other Republicans in the field. There will be others that get in. Most are my friends. But this is about the future of America. This isn't about how many people are going to be on that stage. It's about who's going to have the solutions that fix things. I could spend all my time trying to make differences with other Republicans. What good does that do our party? What good does that do our country? It but there doesn't. are differences. You do believe there are differences. Of course there'll be differences. But most of us will agree on a lot of the same things. It's going to come down to solutions, results, our record. I've been a two-term governor. I took a failed double-digit unemployment state and made it an economic powerhouse. I was at the U.N. I didn't deal with one country. I dealt with 192 and took the kick-me sign off of our back. Everything I've ever done, I have proven results, and I've worked, and I've shown what I'm capable of. That is what I'm going to run on. That's what I'm going to talk about. And you have an editorial in the New York Post. Uh, It says you'll cut billions in foreign aid that we send our enemies. It's interesting, but you you understand what our aid does and why it gives us influence in return. 
Where are you looking to cut? So, first of all, $46 billion in foreign aid given last year. And you are giving money to countries that say death to America, and we've got to stop. You can't buy friends. Quit giving money to countries that hate us. It's, this is money going to Iraq. We know how close they are with, you know, the terrorists. Soleimani was there. Why are we giving them money? You're giving money to Pakistan. We were giving $2 billion in military aid. They were harboring uh, terrorists that were trying to kill our soldiers. Trump was you right had to cut put, that. Trump was good to, you know, put it back, and I support him in that. Biden is rolling it back in. Zimbabwe, they are the most anti-American African country out there, and we're giving them money. Cuba, we, we named them a state terrorist sponsor, and we're giving them money. China, we are giving money to China on the environment. Stop giving money to countries that hate us and start focusing on our friends and our allies instead. A few more minutes with uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley running for president now on the GOP side. First, uh, first debate is August. Uh, will the governor slash ambassador sign the pledge to support the nominee, whether it's her or somebody else? We'll get that answer when we come back on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. So are you prepared to block the former president? Well, he, he signed it in 2016. I he know. did. Everybody signed it in 2016. But this is about the here and the now. Yeah, he didn't I, commit I to it. I think they're all going to sign it. I really do. I think the voters are very intent on winning, and they do not want to see a debate stage of people saying, I'm not going to support this guy, I'm not going to support this guy. What they need to say is, I'm going to do everything I can to defeat Joe Biden, And that means supporting the nominee of the Republican Party. Ron McDaniel on CNN saying that no one gets on the debate stage unless they sign to unite around the eventual winner. Uh, Governor Nikki Haley is is a declared candidate right now. Governor, would you sign that? Absolutely. Any of our people. Are you for this? You know, look, I have no problem. Any of our people will be better than Biden every day of the week. So we need to remember what the overall good is. The overall good is to make sure that we no longer have a Democrat in power. I'll say it again. We have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. That means Republicans are doing something wrong. We need to be the party of addition. We need to be bringing people into the party. We need to be talking about our solutions, lifting up everyone. And that means focusing on saying, yes, we're going to rally around solutions. And whoever the voice is that has those solutions, that's who we're going to be for. And I think we have to stay focused on that. Uh, I, it looks like President uh, Trump, was, when asked, said, depends who the nominee is. Do you think it might be to his advantage not to debate? 
I don't know. I don't worry about his politics or how he's going to handle it. He beats to his own drum. I'm going to tell you that we always have to keep the country first in mind and then the party. And I think in order to do that, you can look at what Biden's doing and saying everything the Democrats have done has been so extreme, so leftist. Our kids are suffering. Our families are suffering. And the international stage, we look incredibly weak. Something's got to give. And we have to do whatever it takes to change that. So what is your plan now? Uh, Because you've been doing this now three weeks. So where are you heading next? Uh, And then I guess one of the hallmarks will be the August debate, wherever it is. You know, we had a few thousand people at our announcement in South Carolina. How did you feel about that? I was so happy. I mean, you know, when you've been a governor and people really appreciate what you did for a state and the results that we brought, they all came in. They showed the love. I'm still incredibly popular in South Carolina, and I appreciated that. Then we went to New Hampshire and Iowa, standing room only, overflow rooms. People were – the momentum is good. Our phones are ringing. The money is coming in. Go to NikkiHaley.com if you want to join. And, you know, everything is strong. So, you know, we head to D.C. Um, today. I've got CPAC on Friday. I've got Club for Growth on Saturday. And then we're going to be headed back to New Hampshire, Iowa, and, and South Carolina. And we're going to continue to fundraise all over the country. How's so. your staffing? Because I know that's key. There's talent uh, behind the scenes, too, that people I, are vying for. I have such an A team. And this isn't something I just cobbled together. I have worked with these people for years. We have our eye focused on getting the American people back on track, and we're ready. I wouldn't have jumped in if I wasn't ready. And, you know, if there's anything you know about me, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right or I'm not going to do it. And we're going to run a race that makes the American people proud, and we're going to run a race that brings back a strong and proud America again and do it in a way that we're going to get rid of this socialism. We're going to stop this defeatism that's taking over our country, and we're going to do right by our kids. You know, the, uh, what was referred to last night at that Chinese select committee uh, on China, that we have 13 Republicans and 11 Democrats. It's kind of heartening to see both sides see this as a problem. 76% of uh, Republicans see China as an enemy, 60% of Democrats. It's pretty close. How would you approach the China situation? Because people who know business and commerce say decoupling is not possible in the near term. You have to focus. You have to focus on the national security threats. I don't care if we buy T-shirts and light bulbs from China any more than I care if they buy our agricultural products. But when it comes to national security, we shouldn't be dependent on our medicines. Look at when we had COVID. They told you to get a mask. China made it. They told you to get COVID tests. China made it. We can't do that. We need to focus number one on letting China know we're onto them. They need to be held accountable for COVID. They need to know that we know the fentanyl that's coming across the southern border is coming directly from them and we're going to hold it stop buying these thousands letting them buy thousands of acres of land you just had 350,000 acres near Grand Forks Air Force Base we know that's where our most sensitive technology is and tell every university you either take China money or you take U.S. money you don't get both and you put a stop to it and when you do that and start holding them accountable for intellectual property you tell them what we expect of them Instead of us being reactionary to them. They might be getting into the Ukraine situation with 100 attack drones. If they do that, what changes? What would Nikki Haley do? Our job is to prevent them from getting it. It was very telling. There was a U.N. vote that would condemn Russia for their um, move into Ukraine. China abstained. 
They're still trying to figure this out. That is why we need to stay strong when it comes to Ukraine. We can't budge. We shouldn't send them blank checks. We shouldn't send them troops. But the equipment, the ammunition that they need, we need to be partnering with our allies and give them what they need to win. It is absolutely. This is a war on freedom, and it's one we have to win. I personally 100% agree with you, hence my lapel pin. Uh, Governor, thanks so much for coming by. I hope that we do this early and often. Thanks. Go to NikkiHaley.com. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So, uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. Wow, wait a second. Let's disable Christopher Ray's account. He's spreading, consp- he's, he's spreading conspiracy theories. Oh, I'm sorry. It's 2023. It's not 2020 anymore. That's exactly what would have happened when Tom Cotton did it. Everyone just said, wow, what a, uh, we watch, I could play, we played this over the last two days, these montages of people putting Tom Cotton down. He was 100% right. The Department of Energy now says more than likely it came from a Wuhan lab. John Stewart a lefty, if there ever was a lefty, of course it came from the Wuhan lab, Wuhan lab. He says he was vilified by as if he was alt-right. And that was Christopher Ray yesterday reiterating on camera, which the FBI already concluded, that this, this virus came from a Wuhan lab. So why, not only are you wrong, why are you going out of your way to vilify people that want to go uh, against what your conclusion is? Like Anthony Fauci. Two days ago, double and triple down, this came, uh, didn't come from a lab. It more than likely was a natural occurrence, even though we can't identify any of the animals or species that it came from. Rich Lowry, editor of Nash Review, author of The Case Against Nationalism. First off, Rich, on this in particular, why have people dug in for this not coming from a lab? Yeah, it's it's just bizarre. You know, why wouldn't you just have an open mind, right, <laughs> and acknowledge, you know, probably not never going to know definitively, but it's at least a possibility, and they, they wouldn't do it in 2020, and there's still people who won't do it now. And I thought it was just amazing. You had the Department of Energy, this U.S. government agency, um, <clears throat> believing that there's some significant probability that this came from a lab, and Beijing engaged in one of the most hideous cover-ups of, of all time and, and lied about it. And you have Stephen Colbert and the guy who does The Daily Show now and others mocking the Department of Energy, the U.S. government agency. You know, not mocking the CCP, not calling out their lies, but uh, uh, mocking people. The, the Daily Show guy was, was still making the case that people who believe in the lab leak are idiots. You know, they just – so they can't stop. You know, I think Trump had a big element to do it. You know, if Trump thought something might be true, the opposite must absolutely be the case. They, they believed people who thought this were stoking uh, tensions with China or had racist intentions or were conspiracy theorists, and this was a time when – 
you know, this is still the case, but they were all obsessed with disinformation and how it was distorting everything. So they thought this was this was disinformation, but it was just terrible. It's uh, th- there've been so many media failures, major ones over the last five years. It's hard to know exactly where this stacks up, but it, it's high. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson said on the origins ca- tracing of SARS uh, uh, COVID nineteen. China has been open and transparent and shared information and data on COVID-19 with the international community in a timely manner. By politicizing the issue, the U.S. will not succeed in discrediting China. Instead, it will only hurt the U.S.'s own credibility. Now, that's as delusional as Anthony Fauci. Yeah, and they, they've said it came from Fort Detrick in, in Maryland, right? So um, th- this is uh, – it was great. I thought that Ray came out, you know, because there there was a lot of chatter. Oh, this is just the Department of Energy, people not focusing on the fact that the FBI came to this conclusion prior to the Department of Energy. And he actually, you know, in that clip, he went much further than Tom Cotton did initially when he got slammed in 2020 because Cotton didn't mention anything about a bioweapon. And he had Chris Ray mentioning that, you know, in the same breath. So um, – Good point. This, is, this has been you – know, the media should report the information. Instead, as you know, don't even tell you, it wants to control the information, and this was uh, Exhibit A. And when, it, when they can't, they just change the subject. So China warns Elon Musk after he talked about the COVID leaks origins. Uh, basically, if you want to sell Teslas, I'll paraphrase, mm-hmm. in China, you won't get involved in this, and you'll walk this back. Now, Musk is bold as, uh, as he can be. The number one richest man in the, uh, in the world, again, he emerges number one. I would love to see him come back and say, we're just pulling Teslas out. I'll give up the billion, uh, the billions of dollars that we could be generating there because it's not in our interest to be there anymore and then see what happens. Yeah. I mean, this is unfortunately, this is a, the, the one area where his fearlessness has some cracks, you know, dealing with China. But China's reaction to Musk, right? Is, is that the reaction of a regime that has nothing to hide? You know, that's all about transparency and the truth and facts. Obviously not. And you know, there's been a focus on this origins debate on and off. But for me, it's just been astonishing. It hasn't been more of an intense focus. I mean, this this is one of the should be one of the major mysteries and questions of our time that everyone should want to get to the bottom of. But that hasn't been the case. You know, what's so interesting is it's if there's fighting uh, with your family and you walk into one room and they say one thing and you walk in the other room, and they say something totally different. You think to yourself, OK, the reality is. Uh, you guys need to talk it out and not condemn each other. Fauci wanted no part of it. Dr. Burks wanted no part of it. Uh, every network wanted no part of you listen, go get vaccinated. You listen, wear a mask. You listen, wear two masks. I told you, Dr. Burks told me on camera, consider wearing goggles because the virus can go through the eyes. You better not go to walking on the beach. If you're going to wear a, if you're going to play sports in high school, Wear a mask outdoors. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. It, you, masks don't work. Outdoors, you're totally safe. Natural immunity not as effective. Natural immunity is now more effective, according to the, rate of the other study. You, micro, myocarditis is not something you get from the virus. That's something you're susceptible to. It's a coincidence. Now we find out, uh, found out you have a 33% chance more, higher chance of getting it after you get the vaccine. All along the way. People were dug in and being right, yep. and when you challenged them, they were they were taken. They took a front for it. Yeah. Now you still see these people in the New York City area, you know, who are wearing masks and goggles outside, and and clearly believe that they're following the science, right? <laughs> when it's the, the totally the opposite. And just the the COVID debate, it just reminds me of a, a lot of things. The last fifteen years, you know, one lesson I've learned is 
pay attention to the dissenters. Pay attention to the people who you think are crazy maybe or, or out there because they might have a point. And this is the reason we have a free and robust debate in this country because uh, you, no one is a total vessel, You know, has a 110% control of the truth. And um, you should debate it out. And what we've seen repeatedly is an attempt to shut down uh, the debate. No, you can't say that on social media that there, there might be a problem with the vaccine. You can't say the mask uh, might not work. And they, they attempted to control this debate. And it's, it's one thing to control it when you're right. They try to control it when on a lot of the stuff they were wrong. Uh, I want to bring you to 2024. Four new polls show that former President Trump receiving a boost on after his great move by going to Palestine, uh, Palestine, Ohio. Uh, one survey shows him over 50 percent support in a crowded GOP field. A solid second is DeSantis. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are in single digits, but higher single digits. Uh, Yahoo News uh, is is one that has great tie on YouGov, Emerson. Uh, at the very least, I don't care if any of these polls are right or wrong. You know a trend. How do you explain? How do you explain the endurance of President Trump? You know, I I don't entirely know. This is uh, I was talking to some people about this yesterday. I think the East Palestine thing was very shrewd. I don't know why other people didn't. And it was pretty sincere, and- by the way. That's him. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know why other people didn't go and, and do it uh, do it first. I think he's been a little less in the in the news, which which helps helps him a little bit. But he's just um, you know even in his his worst moments, and he's he's had some last several months. You know, he never dropped that much. Um, he was behind DeSantis and, and head to heads, but he was still comfortably ahead in multi candidate tests. And what's notable about the Yahoo poll yesterday, it's a head to head and has Trump um, ahead of DeSantis. So you know we got to see how they run. We got to see how it really, really shakes out. But any hope that Trump would just fade away and that you can be a, a non-Trump candidate and just sort of duck and cover and bide your time and wait for him to go away and not engage and not make the case against him, that, that hope should be shattered. You know, someone's going to have to go, you know, as the Texan said in the Texas Revolution about that cannon, come and take it. Someone's going to have to come and take it from him. And that's a daunting prospect. So I want you to hear, I was able to talk to Ron DeSantis on, on Monday. We had her on Tuesday, and I asked him about Trump. Here's what he said. I read the whole thing, not one disparaging word about President Trump. Are you guys speaking now? Do you plan on speaking to him? He seems to be taking some shots at you. No, I mean, look, I, I mean, it's silly season. I mean, you know how how some of this stuff goes, and obviously he he does his thing, and it's just that's kind of kind of kind of who he is. But what I wanted to do was was just give an honest appraisal of kind of how we got to this point, the failures of the D.C. Republican establishment, and how Donald Trump was speaking to things that some of the old guard refused to address. And and that's just a fact. And, you know, he can say, you know, what he wants about me. I'll always give him credit for the things that he did uh, that were positive. And I'm, and I'm appreciative of a lot of, of the things uh, that he did. Doesn't mean I, you know, agree, agree with, with everything um, that he's doing lately or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, it's about delivering for the people you represent and delivering for the country. You know, a lot of politicians, you've seen a lot of uh, finesse. What, how do you think Governor DeSantis handled it, and how? It, what is the best way to handle Donald Trump? 
on finesse, it's an A plus, you know, and that's not the answer. That's not an off, off the cuff answer, right? That's someone who's thought about very specifically and carefully about what he's going to say in response to that question. And I think it's it's the appropriate uh, response for him now. I don't think there's any alternative for him now. He's out there trying to build his brand, his message. If he gets in the in a, a mud fight with Trump, you know, Trump might win. But even if Trump doesn't win, it's going to distract him from what he wants to do, including you know this legislative session that starts ne- next week in Florida. That's very important where he wants to put, put more points on the board. So it's fine for now. It's just once he's in, that answer is, is no longer sufficient. And, and how, how he responds and, and how he can deal with the Trump buzzsaw is one of the big question marks around his potential candidacy. So when it comes to Joe Biden, it looks like he's in. He uh, is sound like he was campaigning yesterday. Here's a little of what he said. Cut 24. There's an awful lot of really good Republicans, but the MAGA Republicans are a different breed of cat. No, they're not bad or good. They're just very, they're very different. It's kind of like, in my view, sort of two Republican parties. So he's going to look to do the same thing he did in the midterms. He thinks that worked. Your thoughts about President Biden, the candidate, and President Biden's tactic? Well, I think you know he's he's lost a, a step or two or three. I don't think he should run. I think it's it's going to be potentially bad for the Democrats if something happens to him, you know, before January 2025. It's potentially bad for the country if he's reelected and something happens to him. So I think it's a it's a bad idea in general. But Democrats don't have a lot of alternatives, and you know this is a guy who's wanted to be in that uh, sitting in that uh, round office, you know, his entire adult life. So you're you're not getting him out of there. <laughs> um, uh, easily. And the message worked, I hate to say, in the midterms. And he, he has a potential to uh, you know, run it against Trump himself. So they, they want Trump. You know, they wanted Trump in 16. It was a bad bet for them. They were totally wrong. Maybe that'll be the case this time around. But they feel as though, you know, Biden got him in 20 and uh, prevailed or at least blunted the Republican gains in 2022. And he can do it in 24. And it's certainly not a crazy bet. I don't know whether it's correct. Very interesting because there's two there's the election. You hear you talk to a Democrat and they say, "Look at everything Joe Biden has done." You talk to a Republican, they say, "Look at everything Joe Biden has done." They are convinced that he's done mm-hmm. nothing good for the country. The Democrats go, "My goodness, he's he's better than Obama." How could yep. we? How could that be? Both perceptions be right. Well, I mean, this is what makes the world go around. You know, you could have asked this in the 1790s, right, between the Federalists and and the the Republicans. So, I mean, he got he got a lot done. Unfortunately, I mean, I I, I think he punched above his weight legislatively the first two years. I, it was all bad, right? So, I think that that's kind of how you square the circle. They're like, look, he, he did all this, and then uh, the conservatives like, yeah, none of it worked, and and all of it's uh, um, in the wrong wrong direction. Um, so we'll see. You know, the, the country doesn't want, in the abstract, doesn't want a Trump-Biden uh, race. But the you have to, if you're betting, man, there's certainly better better than 50 percent chance that that's what it's going to get. And we're going to find out when the debates start in August. DeSantis will probably be in the spring. Tim Scott probably any week now. Pompeo and Pence right after that. And then it's going to be interesting to see if the Christie Gnomes get in there. The Governor Youngkin gets in there too. Uh, and then how it all plays. And then how Donald yep. Trump does. Does Donald Trump have another? A tool in his toolkit to bring to the table besides 2020 was stolen mm-hmm. and I'm allowed to have lunch with white supremacists once in a while and look at my record in 20, you know, in 2016. He had a great record to run on, but what he did in between that losing that election hurt him more than anything he did when he was president. Do you agree? Yep, yep. I do. Uh, and I would just uh, uh, 
include just a huge dose of modesty here. No one knows how this is going to play out, you know, and, and it's just extremely rare that in this juncture of a presidential race, what you're talking about, what you think is going to happen, what's the conventional wisdom proves out. So uh, so we got to see. It's fascinating. I've, I've hated this kind of interim period where nothing much is happening. It's yep. just Trump and, of course, Nikki got it. And I, I want to see this race. If, if nothing else, you know, as an observer, I think it's going to be completely fascinating. And she was just in studio. Let me just tell you that if you're going to go on issues, she knows every issue she goes deep. You might not agree, but she's not going to be flummoxed like our current vice president mm-hmm. or like people that just get in because they've been governors. They don't understand the, the international scene. Uh, she's ready to go. So I, I laugh at anybody that tries to sleep on her personally. Uh, I don't know how you feel. Maybe we'll read it in a column in the National Review. Yep. Rich, always great to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I'll come back with your calls. We have a lot to discuss. Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Well, what I know is he's been very concerned uh, throughout this process about uh, what the people of East Palestine are going through. Uh, I think also a, a visit to that level can uh, uh, can sometimes uh, have a, a lot of disruptive effects, so it would need to be thought of carefully. But I'm certainly glad that I went. <laughs> Three and a half weeks later, Pete Buttigieg goes at 7 in the morning. He still can't handle any press. He showed up in a costume, and he left. Now he's talking about the president and he's saying, well, he, if he goes down there, it's going to be a problem, big footprint. Was it a problem when you went to the brush fires in California? Was it a problem when you go to every hurricane one week later, a few days later? The only time it's a problem with presidents, if it, there's a volatile situation, still smoldering fire, still problem with an earthquake, still dangerous, or if the rescue crews are still in the middle of a rescue operation. But for a president not to go to Ohio in a contaminated city, seemingly— that certainly is under stress when it's nothing to do with him. He did nothing wrong. His administration is not culpable. All they have to do is try to fix it. That's all. And the EPA director, to his credit, that has been down there every day. He's sending up a permanent center there to answer people's questions. And even though he has not had all the answers, even though his tests on when it comes to air quality are different than the independent tests, I'm going to hold true to what I was saying. You're a smart person. You want to give back when you're in government. You don't do it to be rich. You, you live for a situation like this where you can do what you can to help. That's what the EPA director is doing. I have not seen it from transportation in any incident. Supply chain, Southwest, all airlines grounded. Uh, the problem, uh, the issues now with this train derailment, balloons. Believe it or not, that's transportation. Hey, coming up before you know it, One Nation, Saturday night, 8 o'clock, and repeated 11 o'clock Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Great roster of guests are lining up already. Uh, Don't miss it. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Radio Show. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. 
Hello, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We're at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world, back from Ponte Vedra, Florida. Thank for everyone for coming out. Was able to do the show there with our great affiliate, WOKV. But we're back uh, and ready to go here in the Big Apple. Uh, bottom of the hour, Senator Tim Scott's going to be with us a matter of weeks, I believe, into the ranking member of the Banking Committee. Uh, the senator from South Carolina declares and standing by John Castamatidis, chairman, CEO of Christidis Foods at the Red Apple Media Group and author of a brand new book. It's excellent. I'm already halfway through. How far do you want to go? Lessons from a common sense billionaire who's kind enough to carry our show on 77 WABC, a radio station he owns. And there'll probably be more. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Which one can you take seriously long enough to not feel ashamed to vote for them? Does Kamala and her laughing pass your laugh test? Is people to judge anything more than just the younger but no less incompetent version of, of Joe Biden? I think when you look at the Democrats, this is how we got Joe Biden. Five GOP presidential polls have Trump on top by 20, with DeSantis in a solid second. As for Joe Biden, sounds much like a candidate, although he has yet to confirm he's coming for another four years. Number two. What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. That that is, of course, Justice Neil Gorsuch looking at the cost of forgiving student loans. We're talking billions of dollars, $500 billion. Is this the time to forgive loans? Keep in mind, they have not made one payment since the pandemic began. We'll discuss what the Supreme Court will decide. Number one. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Uh, that is Christopher Ray yesterday with Brett Baer. Believe it yet? The FBI says a lab leak uh, caused COVID-19 to spread around the world and killed millions. Okay, every dem, please look back at the really uh, that at the reality staring you back in the face before you admit you were wrong. Apologize for your words and deeds. That's why the House is taking up the threat, which is China today. And joining us now, John Castamatidis, who wrote his success story. How far do you want to go? Lessons from a common sense billionaire. John, congratulations on the book. How hard was it to write your story, or did you enjoy it? I I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and people ask me, why did you write the book? I said, well, I don't have any grandchildren, and uh, uh, someday I hope to have the grandchildren, and I want to know who's paying. And, and if they want to know who's paying their tuition, they'll find <laughs> out through the book. Understood. Uh, tell us your story. I mean, you came over. You you grew up anything but in the lap of luxury. What was life like for young John Castamatidis trying to make his way in New York? Well, we grew up on the poor side of town. Uh, I came uh, to America when I was six months old, even though my two grandfathers came in 1913. So they came a long time ago, and we lived on 135th Street by City College in, in, in Harlem, uh, uh part of Harlem there in that area and uh, uh, my father worked as a busboy and and he never made more than a hundred dollars a week and and uh, he we ate chicken every day and we uh, uh, and it was rough and watching television and you and you see what the other side lives like you want to move up and it gives you the incentive to work hard and and uh, it could only happen in America Brian and that's the that's the reason I wrote the book. The greatest country in the world. 
people are breaking down barriers to come to the United States of America because there's opportunities. Nobody's breaking down barriers to go to Cuba or <laughs> Venezuela right now or Russia. They're, but they're breaking down barriers to come to America. And people have to know that. And and, and the biggest problem I have right now, my my father, uh, my grandfathers, his, his uncles came to America. They went through Ellis Island. And Ellis Island... You, you made sure nobody had any diseases, made sure everybody pledged allegiance to our flag. Uh, they, were, they came here to work hard. And right now, I would say I am pro-immigration, but we have to know who's coming and going. What say you, Brian? Well, yesterday, uh, John, I was at Ponte Vedra. I did one of my, uh, we did one of those diner shoots. I was able to do the radio show, too, from Florida. And as I went to JetBlue and they told me my flight was two hours late, I should have had you as a pilot. I had no idea you had that aviation background. Uh, they turned around and says, uh, Brian, I know who you are. Just turn around. I said, why? See all those people lined up? And there was probably 50. This happens every day. I go, where are they from? He goes, they were just bust in. They're all getting on free flights to various places in the country to sponsor families. I mean, think about the four million people that came here illegally over the last two years. And there's, it's people, no, nobody has anything against immigrants. We love them. We're the only country growing in population. Japan, China, Russia are wilting. And we're getting them. But this is not the way to do it. A hundred percent right, Brian. I am pro-immigration. You are pro-immigration. But we have to know who's coming and going. We can't let terrorists in. We can't let drug dealers in. We can't get people to come in without an examination that they have diseases and have their kids go to our kids' schools that have diseases. I mean, all we want is checks and balances, and it's a smart thing to do, Brian. Yeah, so I'm reading your book, and I, you know, you are a self-made success story, and you just worked, and you just decided you got a job in a supermarket making a dollar a day, a dollar an hour. Was it a dollar an hour or a dollar a day? No, I was making ninety cents an hour, and the cashier was making a dollar an hour, dollar. and I was very upset about that. But you immediately took to the business. I guess your mom said to your uncle, "Hire him." They didn't know what you're going to do with it. You were doing everything, and you began to learn I, the business. Correct. You learned the business, and I was going to NYU at the time, and uh, I ended up uh, loving the business. And my uh, my cousin Tony, but he wasn't really my cousin, but I go over. I, I'm an only child, so I made him my cousin. Uh, he, he sold me one of his other stores. He was partners with an uncle in for ten thousand dollars. Because he was arguing with his uncle every day. Every day he would argue with his uncle. He didn't want to do it anymore. I never had an argument with his uncle. We did well in the store, and uh, but I was eight credit short or six credit short at NYU, so I never never graduated, uh, and, and you know college. And my mother, uh, she said, she says, uh, my mother cried. My my father yelled, and he says, we sent you to the university. To, to become a Hamali. You know what a Hamali was? It was a Greek-Turkish word that meant the guy that carries crates on his back. <laughs> and uh, But I, I learned because Brooklyn Tech, a good, great high school in, in New York, gave me a good education, gave me a good uh, leadership roles. And guess what? We we had one store, then we had two stores. By the age of... of uh, 
24 years. By 19, you know, yeah, 23, 24, I had 10 stores making a million dollars a year. And a million dollars a year was a lot of money in those days. So as smart as you are, what I think I get from this and is that you just outwork people. You like people. You made the supermarket instead of a cold, drafty place, a place where you got to know everybody's name. They, you had a cat that would walk around the place they would know. When you weren't there, they'd say, where's John? And then you'd show the people they cared, and the well, neighborhood supermarket asked, became a place to go. They where the cat was. Yeah, they wanted they to know the where the cat was. But whoever goes to a supermarket today and thinks to themselves, I feel at home, and you created that. And the reason why you, see, you explained your, your uncles argued is because you weren't making money yet. And when you walked in there, you didn't have the money, but you said pay it off out of the business. And you started making money. And then the arguing never never took place because you were you were making money and having success. That wipes away a lot of the, the sniping. But then you, instead of saying, oh, my goodness, I came from poverty. I'm going to hold on to this. Can't wait to, you know, I, I'm going to hoard it, put it in a savings account. You said, no, I'm going to grow it. Where did the audacity to grow rather than hoard come from? That's, I, I don't know. I think uh, my mother or my father wanted to sell memories, you know, and, and, and we kept reinvesting the money, reinvesting the money. I had 10 stores by the age of 23, 24. Then, uh, we had, uh, then I started buying real estate in 1977. The, the world was coming to an end in New York City. The real estate market was diving crazy. You could buy it for nothing. So I took the excess cash flow from the supermarket business, bought real estate, uh, a couple million dollars, three million, four or five million dollars. And guess what? When I woke up one day, uh, when the market recovered, that was how I made my first hundred million. Right. Everyone remembers their first hundred million. Uh, but you made an investment. It, it was bold. And so, John, the thing is, I'm just saying that I think the average instinct for someone who grow up with little would be, I can't believe how much I have. I'm a millionaire. Let me hold it and do something conservative. But you had where did that confidence come to say, I'm going to take a risk? Where, where, who was behind you saying, take that risk? Or is that just guts? Or is that just an instinct? Well, it certainly wasn't my mother. It certainly wasn't my father. I mean, uh, they weren't made like that. And uh, uh, I don't know. I think I just did it. I mean, uh, it was uh, uh, I, I didn't I didn't have much expenses. I never spent a lot of money on my own for my own self. You know, I went out to dinner. I had a car. I had an apartment. But other than that, I didn't go out and to to do uh, dumb things and buy, you know, forty million dollar yachts or forty million dollar planes or anything like that. I just worked hard. I wanted to grow the business, and then we went into the uh, corporate jet companies, and we bought my I bought my first uh, jet from Roy Disney, and my my pilot at the time, Jim Jacobs. Uh, we grew that company up to forty eight airplanes, and that ended up becoming NetJets. Really? And, and yes. you, you did note that how expensive it was to travel. And that was kind of bothering you a little bit, right? Like, man, between fuel and repairs and, and fees. And that's why we set up uh, Atlantic City was opening up at that time. We went down to Atlantic City, me and Jim Jacobs, and we said to them, uh, you know, you need, you're bringing in the customers within 90 mile radius or 100 mile radius. Uh, for to, to, to lose money in your casinos. How about we give you an airplane where you can bring them in from a 500-mile radius? And that's how we grew it from one airplane 
to 48 airplanes because of Atlantic City, all our customers, all the casinos, they wanted to bring in more uh, customers into, the, into Atlantic City, and, and they would bring them in for dinner. Fascinating. Uh, John Casamitidis is our guest. How far do you want to go? Lessons from a common sense billionaire. So, John, one thing that happens is as an only child, your parents would do everything. You point out that, you know, you had trouble uh, in school. You drive your car back. It'd take you forever to find a spot. You found out your mom would uh, stop, went out and got herself a job. And the exact money that she made would go to you getting into a parking garage. When you found that out, you said, enough of this. I'll park on the street. How gratifying was it, do you remember, to have the ability to pay your mom's and your dad's rent uh, on their place? I, Brian, I had tears in my eyes. You know, a mother loves a child so much. She she wanted to, to pay for my garage spot on 135th Street. It was $48 a month rent, but she had to work two weeks, two weeks to earn $48. I wouldn't allow that. I wouldn't allow that. I made her quit after I saw her first paycheck because, you know, it's got to be love of your parents, and that's what every family, and I think we're missing that right now. Kids have to love their parents more. Parents love their children. And you know the one thing I did, uh, uh, Brian? I never sent my kids away for college. I don't want to send them to Timbuktu. Mm-hmm. When they went to when they went to school, they went to to NYU uh, Stern School <laughs> in New York City, and they love to come home. And I would love to give my kids a hug every day instead of sending them to Timbuktu. And, and lastly, you, when you said when you got into West Point and you got into the Air Force Academy, your parents said, no, that you're not going to do that. And they really convinced you not to do it. You end up ROTC for a while and you realize the military thing wasn't for you. Vietnam was raging. The last thing is parents listening right now. You had very little, never felt like you wanted, but very little, but you had a hunger. Do you worry your kids won't have that same hunger because you have earned so much? That's one of my uh, sad points that that uh, you try to give your kids in, the, in this generation. I think we try to give our kids too much, and they don't have the hunger uh, to to go out and make it themselves. And uh, uh, that's the big, biggest teaching uh, thing that we have to do to these kids. And uh, uh, my son works seven days a week. And yeah, he's I, a workaholic. Know, uh, he, yeah, he he's works a workaholic. Hard. But uh, uh, that's what America has to teach our kids. And the latest statistics, uh, Brian, is that only 20% or 23% or 25% of the American homes right now is the traditional America home. Mother and, and father. And, and, Mother and father, and, and remember when we were growing up, we watched Leave It to Beaver, or, or you know, and 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 we're, we're losing that, and we got to make sure America stays the way we grew up, uh, and uh, you know, and just love our kids, and uh, make sure our kids and grandkids have the future mm-hmm. the way we had a future when we were growing up. Well, you, I know for a fact you've created that family uh, uh, family attitude with your family. Even though you, you've earned so much, they still have that hunger. John Casamitidis, congratulations on your book. There's so much to Thank learn you. in it. How far do you Brian, want to go? Lessons from a common sense let, billionaire. Let me remind anybody, you can buy the book 
and you can buy the book any place on Amazon or uh, or uh, Barnes and Nobles. And uh, and a friend of mine said to me, uh, he says to me, will I make a billion dollars if I read the book? I said, I certify you're going to make a billion dollars when you read the book. And <laughs> you know what he said to me? Right. If I buy two books, would I buy get make two billion dollars? And that's a good answer. The answer is yes. John, thanks so much. Yes. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You got it. Back in a moment with your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show, Bottom of the Hour Center. Tim Scott, big hour. So glad you're here. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The last people I would trust with my health is big pharma and big government because neither one of those strike me as caring entities. They're all about profit. And both sides know that. seen the profit they've made. There was only one thing that could work, and that's the vaccine, right? And so ultimately, because of that, billions of dollars was made. Woody Harrelson uh, speaking his mind about the vaccine, the mandates, Kind of flying against the liberal school of thought. Take it no matter what. Which I always said, even though the Trump administration through Operation Warp Speed, which is a huge success story. If, the Trump, if Trump won re-election and said, you know, guys, here's a vaccine. If there were any problems with the vaccine, they would say Trump is killing people. He rushed it. It was way too fast. Uh, he didn't go through the process. He didn't do the checks and balances. He's paid off to Big Farm. He sold his soul. All that stuff would happen. And every uh, actor... Uh, a liberal thought leader, Al Frankadon Down, would have been, I'm not taking that vaccine. Remember, Kamala Harris said that. Would you take the vaccine? Well, I'd have to have it checked out with my doctor and Governor Cuomo at the time. Now disgraced. I have to to check it out. I wouldn't trust it coming from Trump. Well, it actually came from Trump, and President Biden mandated it, shoved it down everyone's throat, and fully divided the country. Wow. Giving the teachers unions the right to shut everybody out in the two week, the 15 days of the spread ended up being two and a half years. Not going to forget it. show like no other it's brian kilmeade i said okay you don't want to come everybody who says we're not going to cut medicare or social security when i asked them to join us and reject the cuts medicare wasn't it something they all stood up they all stood up and they're all on camera (laughs) got all their pictures like i said i believe in conversion Maybe they found, as my grandfather's, maybe they found religion on Social Security and Medicare. So that was President Biden in Virginia Beach, Virginia, sounding a lot like a guy ready for his reelection campaign. But again, going back on the State of the Union, saying that he converted Republicans to keep their hands off Medicare and Social Security. To me, that seems totally inaccurate. But many people think Republicans were wrong to actually sound off live in that room. I don't. Because anyone watching the 33 million that watched know for a fact when President Biden comes out and says Republicans want to cut you Social Security and Medicare, they remember back to the 
the State of the Union address, there was actually an uproar about it. Senator Tim Scott was there, uh, joins us now, ranking member of the Banking Committee, member of the Foreign Relations and Small Business Committee. Senator, I just want to get your reaction to the president's takeaway from his State of the Union. Well, Ryan, he said too little and too much time, number one. Number two, certainly Republicans have no desire to negatively impact Social Security. He continues to create a mythology out of whole cloth. And he does that for one purpose. It's for his reelection aims. His goal of being reelected means he will distort the truth, fabricate, fabricate facts in order to help him look good in front of the public. So your takeaway, are you looking to cut Medicare and Social Security, uh, knowing that Medicare, I think Social Security goes bankrupt in 2030? Absolutely not, Brian. The one thing that we as a party, we're, we're absolutely committed to doing is, is making sure that Social Security is there for the ages. We have to make sure that we secure Social Security. Right now, we're spending over a trillion dollars for Social Security. We're spending around $850 billion on Medicare Plus, and it's going up every year. So we have to make sure that we keep those two uh, organizations solvent without any question. So I know you're in a listening tour phase. Where have you been over the last week or so, and what have you been hearing when, as you consider not only being an impactful senator, hoping to get back the majority in two years, but maybe running for president? Well, one of the things I've heard on the Faith in America tour is that people have an appetite, and frankly, they're starving for hope, that there is clear indications that people want an optimistic, purpose-driven, yet rooted in conservatism message that resonates with them. I've heard that from Texans to South Carolinians and certainly in, in Iowa as well. So in other words, do you find that people are receptive to the idea of you running? Brian's been exciting, to be honest with you. People certainly are receptive to the message. And to me, the mission is far more important than the position. The more I focus on the American story that we all have a shared uh, investment in, the better off we are. The truth has been for me, I love having the chance to travel across this country and see how committed people are to who we are as Americans. The radical left literally want to change the very DNA of what it means to be an American. We are that firewall. We are the defender of faith. We are the thing that stands in the way of socialism in America. A united Republican Party closes the path to socialism. So, as you know, the president, everybody knows we're Republicans, as tradition would have it, Iowa caucus first, then New Hampshire second. For Democrats, they're picking South Carolina first. How do you feel about that? That's your state. Do you think it should be first? Well, I'm glad that we are the first in the South because I believe that Iowa has the type of diversity of thought that informs the entire nation. There is something very important about the tradition of Iowa going first. It's one of the reasons why we as South Carolinians have embraced that. Here's what we're seeing from the radical left, though. They want to make everything about race and identity politics. Moving South Carolina up is to the advantage of Joe Biden because of the high level of uh, black voter participation in South Carolina. That is another reinforcement that identity politics is the way of the future for the radical left. In America, the rest of our country, we believe that we're going to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And so we can have confidence that our friends in Iowa will do their jobs and give us strong indications on who the nominee should be. Unlike the left, the radical left, we believe that all of America matters.
Um, I have to tell you, the polls are out, and I know that's part of your evaluation. Can I win? You know, you don't, you don't need fame. You don't need recognition. You don't need respect. You have all of it. Uh, anyone who spends any time, especially in your home state or in or the capital, knows that. Very few people are respected on both sides of the aisle like you are, in my humble opinion. But there are four new polls that show that former President Trump receiving a huge boost of Republican support. Uh, he hit over 50% in one of these polls. Uh, Yahoo, uh, YouGov poll, he's got an eight-point lead over DeSantis, who's solidly second in just about all of them. Emerson poll, the Trump president, former president's got a 30-point lead. He's somebody that you work well with. What's Tim Scott's reaction to that as he thinks about whether he runs or not? Well, Brian, listen, I think we can all thank the good Lord that from 2017 to 2020, we had majorities in the House, the Senate, and President President Trump in the White House. We literally saw the greatest economy when we were all working together. We saw the lowest unemployment rates for African Americans, Hispanics, for Asians, the lowest since World War II for women, and the general population, 3.5% unemployment, a 50-year low. One of the things that we produce when we are in leadership are strong, powerful results. So I am never going to bemoan uh, our former president being a part of the process because he's earned the right to be so. And listen, uh, you're not going to get me to say anything negative about any of our candidates. Any single Republican who decides to run for president, based on the ones that I know today, will be better than every single Democrat who decides to run for president. But you know how it goes. There's not been one primary season where Republicans don't look at each other and Democrats don't look at each other and find fault. So when you go up there, how would a Tim Scott presidency be different from a Donald Trump presidency? Well, I think the, I think the, the better question is, what do the American people need for us to see uh, the next American sunrise? For us to see the next American sunrise, we should start talking about the journey that we've had as a nation, how far we've gone in so little time. And then we should ask ourselves the question, how do we restore hope and faith and confidence in the future. One of the ways that we do that from a policy standpoint is to extend and make permanent the personal side of the tax code. Because of a small concept called reconciliation, we were not able to make the permanent side of the tax code uh, permanent, the, the personal side of the tax code permanent. We have to do that so that we make sure that people don't have an increase in their taxes when the tax cuts expire in just about two years. Another thing that we have to do is make sure that we are the party of parents. And in the first days of any new administration, I would hope that the Republican Party, the GOP, the Great Opportunity Party, would take the time to have a conversation about giving parents choice so their kids have a better chance. We cannot allow for the continued indoctrination as opposed to the, of the education of our future leaders. Yeah, what's unbelievable is charter schools uh, having the ability to go to private schools, Catholic schools. If you give them the money, uh, it helps minority groups traditionally more than anybody else. But yet, yeah. it's, it, yet it is the inner cities, uh, they get pushback because they don't, because the teachers' unions side with Democrats and they do not want to see Kids have a choice. Families have a choice. Senator, uh, which is crazy, right? I mean, it's just insane. Why would you get into politics and hurt kids? Exactly. And one of the things that we're seeing today is that we're seeing public education too often side with adults over kids. We're seeing big labor bosses dictate whether kids are trapped in failing schools or trapped out of schools during the COVID. We have to make sure that we spend more time focusing on the future of our children 
than the resources of the big labor unions. Senator Tim Scott, our guest. So, t- Senator, one of your passions, too, is stopping fentanyl from flooding through the border, and it is. It's gotten so much worse, and there's no real plan uh, on this administration to attack it. The uh, Attorney General Garland right now is on Capitol Hill, and Senator Graham, your fellow senator in South Carolina, asked him this. How would you describe the fentanyl problem in America? It's a horrible epidemic, okay. uh, but it's an epidemic that's been unleashed on purpose by the Sinaloa um, and the new generation Jalisco cartels. Okay. Let's just stop and absorb that for a moment. It's a horrible epidemic. It kills more people than car wrecks and gun violence combined. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Uh, I think we we have more than enough um, ability now to uh, attack this problem. Well, would you agree with me? Whatever we have is not working. Well, I, whatever I, we're doing is not working. I, I agree with that because of the number of deaths yeah, that you so, pointed out. So, so the, just keep an open mind that what we got on the books is not working. I mean, what's he saying? We have enough tools, and then he admits uh, we're not doing enough. Here's what we know. This administration has not taken seriously securing the southern border. If you do not take seriously securing the southern border, you're not taking the fentanyl crisis seriously enough. You have a problem created in Chinese labs, then using Mexican cartels to bring it to our southern border to lead to thousands upon thousands of American lives lost. We need to shut it down in the Chinese labs stop the Mexican cartels, and save American lives. Unless he has a strategy to do both in China and in Mexico, uh, we are not serious about this problem. The best way to do that is to do what we can do as a nation, close our southern border. Just three weeks ago, Brian, three weeks ago, my good friend Alan Chow, who used to be the business dean at College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina, lost his 27-year-old son to fentanyl. First time, he was passed away. We have a responsibility to the more than 100,000 American families who have seen their loved ones lost to the crisis of overdoses, over 70,000 specifically linked to fentanyl. We have a responsibility to close our southern border. Last thing, I just want to get uh, Senator Tim Scott to, to comment on Ukraine. There's so many Republicans who say, I want, let's just get out of there. It's not our problem. I don't like this government. I don't feel that way. Either does former President Trump. Listen. I think the United States should negotiate peace between these two countries. And I don't think they should be sending very much. They should be negotiating peace. And the other thing is uh, Europe has to do much more because Europe is doing probably just a small fraction of what we're doing. Not probably. They're doing a very small fraction of what we're doing. We're going to be in there, I believe, for $107 billion. And Europe is in there for a tiny fraction of that amount. And obviously, it's bad for everybody, but it affects Europe more than it affects our country. So you think and, it's a, do you think it's a time for peace, Senator Scott? Listen, I, I certainly know that it is not time for China to broker a peace deal between the Russians and the Ukrainians. You cannot have any confidence in China's ability to do so, number one. Number two, I certainly would love to see an end to the Ukrainian uh, invasion by uh, homicidal leader Putin. But here's what we know. Uh, we have to understand America's national vital interest 
before we enter and how we get out of any conflict anywhere on earth. That is one of the failures of this leadership from President Biden. His dereliction in duty is that he followed the Germans, he followed the Europeans into this conflict without establishing first clear objectives. We should be leading the world, not following others. And once we understand our national vital interests, which would include degrading the Russian military so as to reduce the threat to our NATO allies, because all for one and one for all, if we understand that, I think the American people would appreciate clarity and consistency from the president of the United States. What's your objective? Before you went in, what would you say if it was a year ago? Yeah, if it was a year ago and I was, I was in a position to have that conversation, I would say degrading the Russian military is a primary objective so as to reduce the threat on our NATO partners in Europe because hitting any soil of our NATO partners requires a response from, from us. Therefore, degrading their military, as we have seen happen, is a very good thing for the homeland as well as for our NATO partners. Well, you wouldn't consider Ukraine an ally that, needs, that need, could be supplied? I'm sorry? You don't think Ukraine's an ally that should be, uh, that should be supported? Well, I certainly think that they are an ally that should be supported. The question we should always start with, however, is what are our national vital interests? And our national vital interests does include our alliances and our allies around the world. The question we should ask ourselves is how do we engage in conflict in the most effective way possible and not see a single American soldier put in harm's way? The current trajectory of providing the resources necessary that does not include manpower and degrading the Russian military Mm -hmm. is a very strong position for us to be in. The question is, do we do that with an open checkbook? I think the answer is no. But if we don't understand our interest in the region, then we don't understand when the end comes. It's here. We're not there yet from my perspective, but we do need Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're having a full engagement from our NATO partners, that they're putting as much skin in the game as we are. Absolutely. You've got to have public pressure. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, thanks so much. Best of luck with your decision and your tour. Uh, Ranking member of the Banking Committee, very well might be a, a presidential candidate shortly. Senator, thank you. Appreciate it. God bless. Have a good day. Back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Oh, yeah, I was telling you about that script. So the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes. And people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea? (laughs) Being forced to do drugs? Wow. So I heard about that monologue, and it's the belief, I guess, Shalmane the God, I guess, was on talking about this on another show. They think he had lived the whole thing. They don't think they probably ever would have green-lighted it. But he's 100% right. That just shows you he, like Bill Maher, thought the COVID restrictions, I think— we're totally ridiculous. What are you talking about making me take something? That is not okay with me. Fundamentally, that along with the revelations 
that we now know the FBI feels the same way the Department of Energy it came from a lab, knowing that everyone told us that it was it was folly. Now we find out studies show masks didn't work and natural immunity better than any vaccine. They told us all that was untrue. And they never admitted when they're wrong. And when you have actors and liberal activists and talk show hosts saying that, we're getting closer and closer to demanding honesty and integrity. Nothing wrong with being wrong, but admit you don't know absolutes. And then if I do something wrong, I will tell you. Anthony Fauci is still saying he was right, still to this day. Brian Kilmeade Show, briankilmeade.com. Order any of my books. I can sign them, endorse them, and get them out to you for all these holidays you have coming up. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Right, I do have a positive outlook. I will outlook and will always have it from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world, standing by, uh, discuss one of the hottest issues in America that means the most and the, to the most, and that is education. This is a former Secretary of Education and author of Hostages No More The Fight for Education, Freedom, and the Future of the American Child. Betsy DeVos will be joining us, and then we'll be able to take a lot of your calls this hour. And I'm going to be going on an outnumbered next hour, so you'll get to see me on television, see if I look as good then as I did on Fox and Friends. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. Which one can you take seriously long enough to not feel ashamed to vote for them. Does Kamala and her laughing pass your laugh test? Is people to judge anything more than just the younger but no less incompetent version of, of Joe Biden? I Kelly think and, when you look at the Democrats, Kelly and this Conway, is how we got Joe Biden. And Kelly and Conway weigh in. Five GOP polls have Trump up significantly. DeSantis a solid second. What does it mean for the overall primary process? We'll talk about Number it. Number two. What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. Right. This we're going to be talking to the Secretary of Education about the folly of massive student loan forgiveness and the massive debt piled on those without their input seems to be hitting a brick wall at the Supreme Court as the left melts down and Randy Weingarten loses her mind. Number one. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Really? Christopher Ray? now you tell us, believe it or not, the FBI says a lab leak caused COVID-19. Okay, every dem, please look at the reality staring you in the face when you look in the mirror. Before you admit you are wrong, you have to also guarantee that you'll apologize for your words and deeds. Why the House is taking up the threat, uh, which is China, and that most people agree on that. Uh, and then guess who gave the pandemic? China. Uh, joining us now is Betsy DeVos. Uh, Ms. Madam Secretary, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Well, uh, first off, on uh, the revelation with COVID, the lockdowns that took place, do you seethe when you think about what they were told, what we were told, and what actually happened, and what happened to people that wanted to speak up? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the ones that bore the most brunt of it, frankly, are the kids who were locked out of school for months on end and who have lost months, if not years, of learning. And, and, and now we hear, you know, Randy Weingarten and all of her cronies coming back around and saying it was, it was uh, you know, they wanted kids back in school. It was everybody else's fault. What's the truth? The truth is they kept locking kids out. They kept playing for political payoffs. They kept playing for Congress to you know, feed them $190 billion plus in additional funding through the COVID relief packages. And uh, the kids are the ones that bear the brunt of it. So we have a situation where if we forgive all students' loans, it's going to be $500 billion on the economy. Already for two and a half years, three years, no one's made a single payment. And when it goes up the Supreme Court, judging by some of the arguments, I, I don't think that this is going to be deemed constitutional. What do you think should happen? What do you think will happen? Absolutely. I, I, I think President Biden's executive order is clearly illegal. Um, we heard many questions that uh, surrounded all of that, but the underlying line of question that wasn't really um, addressed in a overt way, but was there sub, you know, subliminally the entire time is Congress. This is Congress's role. Congress has the power of the purse. And we have right now a president who thinks he can just wave a wand and you know, blow away billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt um, just because he knows it, it was a policy that was going to have political payoff for him. I want you to hear what Randy Weingarten said. She was just out of control yesterday, embarrassing. Cut 18. I see it as a moral issue. I mean, okay. the Republicans are making it, these states are making it a political issue. Like when all of a sudden did college not become something we wanted kids to do? But it's been a huge Spyrock, it's been a huge escalation of costs for college. College costs a lot more today, Andrea, than when you went or when I went. Absolutely. And so consequently, what this relief is, it's not cancellation totally. It's relief as we go into the lifting of the student debt moratorium. So they say $20,000 maximum for people to get Pell Grants, which means you're economically disadvantaged for for the most part. So $20,000 worth of relief. But as Gorsuch brings up and others have brought up, well, if you're 18 years old, you might choose to go to college. Okay, there's your loan. And if you're 18 years old, you might want to start a landscaping company. You have to go take out a loan. Why does the student get his money or her money back? And why does the landscaper CEO not get his money back? It's in, there's an inequity there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, this was politics wrapped in policy. And um, I believe the court is ultimately going to decide that this is patently illegal. This is not an executive branch role. Um, the, the four living former Republican secretaries of education and myself all looked carefully at the laws they have referenced, the HEROES Act and uh, the CARES Act. And we all agree and we all had different roles in the implementation of those acts. There is no authority for the Secretary of Education, the executive branch, the president, to uh, to cancel student loans en masse. Have you have, – uh, we're talking with Secretary of Edu- former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. Have you looked at the co- cost of colleges? Have you ever had these conversations with these universities' presidents and how the cost is now seventy to $80,000 in private universities, how that happened? Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. It is it is overwhelming, and everybody can agree that the cost of education is a real issue, and the whole, stu- the, the whole uh, nationalization of student loans is an issue. These are issues we were drawing attention to during the Trump administration, and we had actual solutions for, but there was no appetite in Congress to actually address them meaningfully. I believe now with this whole attempt to wipe out billions of dollars of student loans, this is going to become a really uh, top-level, important issue to address. Look, colleges have no incentive to keep their costs in line because they're continuing to get the flow of money out of, you know, from, from the U.S. Treasury for, on behalf of individual students. But there is no cap, there's no governor on what they can charge. And if you look at what they've been doing in terms of increasing cost, uh, overall cost to students, it's adding all kinds of administrative uh, personnel. Uh, for example, at uh, the University of Michigan, there are more DEI employees than there are history professors. And you look at how they, the, you know, the costs of administration and all of these individuals who have nothing to do with direct instruction and all of the amenities, whether it's, you know, the lazy rivers or the climbing walls, um, the, you know, the cost is, the, the costs just continue to escalate and there is no incentive, there's no governor on colleges and universities to keep their costs in line. And we also are seeing this, we're seeing the disappearance of standardized tests kind of got ushered through during the pandemic. People, they say the major colleges are looking to diversify their student body, which means I'm not going to give it to the person with the highest scores. I'm going to get rid of those tests entirely and kind of make the choice. I'm out of uh, I'm out of Asians. I'm out of whites. I need more women. I need more gay women. I need more heterosexual men. That's how they're going to start grading admissions. Well, and then, yes, the notion of merit going by the wayside is, you know, spells big trouble for our country long term. Um, There is every reason to take merit into consideration and to ensure that individuals who have the talents and the capabilities have the opportunity to learn and do great things. It, it, It will help everyone. And the focus should be on ensuring that we are aspiring to the best not, you know, numbing and dumbing down to the least. That would be something uh, to, to look at. When you see CRT, when did you first come across it? What grades do you think it comes in? How effective do you think is Governor DeSantis in taking this on? Um, I think it's coming in in the earliest of grades, and it is not just in major urban areas. It is in small towns across the country. Um, the, and that, in addition to the hypersexualization with young children, and so that's why we see parents paying attention in a way and, and, and raising their voices in a way they haven't before, uh, because all of this was exposed in a way that we, didn't, we had not anticipated because of the pandemic. If there was a silver lining to the pandemic, it is that parents had the front row seat to see what was actually happening in their children's classrooms and in their schools, and they aren't going to take it anymore. I know you know uh, uh, President Trump very well, and I know at the end, after January 6th, you said, I'm done. Knowing that he's winning in the polls right now uh, as he tries to get the nomination and get the presidency back, where do you stand in terms of your support? Well, I know that Republicans have to win in 2024 because the the uh, future prognosis for our country is really bleak if we don't. 
and we're going to continue to support great conservative candidates that will uh, will stand for um, the, the values and the principles our nation was founded on. And I'm looking forward to continuing to do that as well. All right. Uh, Secretary Betsy DeVos, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brian. Okay. Uh, listen, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 7669 You also write me. Go to briankilme.com, click on comments, and I'll be able to get to it then. Uh, you listen to the Brian Kilme Show. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There's a Taiwanese election in 2024. It's not going to be good. I think from the view of Xi Jinping, and then we our own election, which we, we tend to be sometimes fractious during an election, I think he may perceive weakness. If we think of deterrence as capability times will, our capabilities are not where they should be, and capacity, and their perception, which I don't think is right, but the party's perception of our will, I think, makes it a dangerous period. So that is H.R. McMaster brought in for the Select Committee on China, bipartisan, primetime address. I love that they did it. I think we can get on the same page of it. It's got to be comprehensive decoupling from not allowing them to buy land to getting rid of TikTok, uh, period. I mean, 383,000 acres of land, a lot of farmland, land around our military bases, getting them out of our boarding schools and charter schools. We're really allowing that and no longer allowing donations from or minimal donations of like $1,000 tops from other nations and so at our colleges. So we don't have to circumvent our integrity in order to get hundreds of millions of dollars like at the University of Pennsylvania. Richard lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Richard. Hey, how are you? Good. What's on your mind? Um, I want to talk about this student loan thing. Um, it, you know, it's really got me annoyed because I have two kids. I'm a blue-collar worker. I work 55, 60 hours a week, and this inflation and the rent prices and everything that's going on right now has hit me so hard that I can hardly make my bills. And instead of turning around and sending an olive branch out to people like me that's busting my butt, the government's going to turn around and say, well, we're just going to pay off people's student loans. I know. So in other words, if you don't have a college diploma – we're not helping you. Nope. You're paying it. That is th- – that's ridiculous. I, I just don't understand. This is a big slap in the face, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do anymore. Well, I, I mean, you listen. Uh, you've signed a student loan. Uh, you want to get you the best education possible, parent, and you have parent loans, and you have student loans, and it's a lot of money. And one of the things you do is cut the interest rate. Instead of saying, here, I'll eat $20,000, everybody, and at the cost of $500 billion, what you do is you go up to these banks and say, listen, why are you giving an 18-year-old kid a 7% loan for $200,000 when the prime rate was like 2 at the time? So you go ahead and cut some interest out of it if you have to. But don't, don't diminish the principal because then we all owe it. Plus, on top of that, it's not going to make you feel better. But, Richard, they haven't paid a dime for two years. It's all been on hold. So for people saying, what about students like Randy Weingart who's screaming about it? Well, what about the fact that for two years you haven't paid anything? That's That, to me, is a big break. By the way, it also costs money. Al, listening online in Clearwater. Hey, Al. 
Hi, how you doing, Brian? Good. What's your mind? Listen, I listen to you guys when I'm in my office all the time and others, and it's just hard to keep up with the topics. But I was touching on what uh, the previous caller was on. I was listening to you speak with Betsy. And, um, I think it's like uh, everybody seems like exploiting everybody, taking advantage of everybody, raising their rates, their fees, their services, whatever. But the colleges and universities, and I'm sure not all, but many, seem to be run like our government with like-minded people. That they go in and they expand, they increase salaries, and I think they maybe possibly exploit the loan environment, knowing that these people are some desperately want to get a good You're education, right. will go through the loan process, pay the rates and fees, which I think they should. They obligated themselves, like we all do in our lives, to various financial situations, and we repay it. And I think they're obligated to do that. But like you've been saying, I've listened to you say that for quite some time now. Lower the rates, make things more affordable, reasonable. I think our government should have more, not necessarily pass through expenses. I mean, there's administration and operational costs involved in anything, but they need to grab something for that. But it's just going back to another topic, too, of, of low environment. I think our government's learned how to capitalize on us as the citizens, again, in another way, like the idle loans of the pandemic era. People had grabbed onto those things to try and sustain their work, their business, whatever. And everybody thinks, oh, it's cheap. It's three and three quarter percent. Yeah, finance like a mortgage over thirty years. Right. Look at the interest you pay on that. Everyone who owns a home, most people don't even recognize it. All you got to do is simple math. Take the total of payments and subtract your principal borrowed. That's how much they're going to make on you. And if that doesn't put people in shock, back when I mortgage brokered years ago, rates were coming down yes. into the fourteen, twelve percent range. And people thought it was wonderful, and I'm like, I'm not the best math student in the world, but I was a good, strong one. And I thought, it's simple. It's ridiculous. But I, I think the you. government sometimes is to falter that too, taking advantage of us and our needs you know, and our desires. Uh, absolutely, Alan. Plus, you want to do anything for your kids. If they get into a great school that's going to change the trajectory of their life and you can't afford it, and they say, well, I can give you a loan, you'll do it. And then it'll turn, turn around and go, what? I have to pay that much every single month? And then you have the pandemic on top of that that destroyed so many lives. Uh, and uh, put on hold so many careers. I got this uh, email from Joseph. Joseph says, what about those colleges that have very large endowments? Why don't they use some of that to pay off the loans of their students? What happens to the money that stays in the endowment fund? Who is being paid out on those funds? Views might like to, uh, we might like to know. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's very few of the Ivy League education with the, with the endowments that big. Dennis, TRC, uh, in Indiana. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Brian, kill me, the man, the myth, and the legend. How are you today, sir? Good. What's on your I'm mind? I'm going to complain against you, brother. Okay. Uh, you want to raise up this uh, retirement age. I do. I think you need to, I mean, it's a good sounding thing to start out with, but one, it'll kill the Republicans. But the other is, maybe we ought to look at a tier system. If you have a very physical job your whole life, your body can't go much longer than a certain point in life, Brian. I mean, if you're oh, working in an point. office or something like that, I mean, that's different. What do you think? That's a good point. Uh, if there are positions and you can't, uh, I guess, aspire to a position less physical, more mental, more cerebral, I understand that in those rare cases. Maybe there should be a category for that, but I know there's 62 or 65 when you can retire. I just know how much longer we're living, Dennis. So if the average person is, let's say, living to 75, 77, you're paying out for 12 years. When they put together the model for Social Security, we're living a lot, uh, we're dying a lot younger. So let's put incentive to stay healthy. And let's let that uh, more people pay into Social Security, let's say. Maybe raise the threshold a little bit. But most of all, you get the money back that you put in, absolutely. But let's get a formula that's going to be sustainable.
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Look, I paid all my student debts. I would say to them that what the time right now is different and what we're trying to do is lift everyone. So as we're trying to create new pathways to opportunities for career, look what's happening with the CHIPS bill. We're creating pathways and opportunities for some kids. Here, there's other kids we're creating opportunities for. Let's try to find ways that we lift all boats. That is a little normal uh, as opposed to how she really acted when she was screaming at the foot at the steps of the Supreme Court, screaming that everyone gets a bailout except students. And it's not her matter. That's apples and oranges. Uh, and she is totally out of control. She has done, I agree with Mike Pompeo. She's done as much damage to American youth as anybody in this country. She's also standing in the way of school choice, which is inexcusable, especially if you want to help minority kids. William was on WTRC in South Bend. Hey, William. Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for taking my call. First of all, let me, and, and I've spoken to you several times, and there's, there's no doubt about it. I am a complete conservative, uh, without a doubt. But when I look at what my wife and I have done, we've worked all of our son's lives. One of them is still a uh, senior right now at a local university here, private university in Indiana. The other one graduated two years ago from a private university in Indiana, both of them being over $65,000 a year. We worked our tail off. Our sons worked their tail off academically in order to be accepted into these schools. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay, everything that I pay for right now, all the taxes that we pay, we don't get any breaks because of the fact that we're not, we're not black, we're not Hispanic, we're not whatever, and all we do is pay and pay and pay. And now when they're saying something about giving a break on it, I'm going, you know what? Maybe it's finally time that we're going to be able to receive something. And I know the fact is that this, sure. it doesn't matter. I'm still paying for it in taxes. But the endowments that these schools have are absolutely, fun. I mean, it's I know, uh, but, but, I, but I do think have. it's out. This is what I, what I think. I think we all agree that the interest rates are way too high. Now, 7% doesn't seem as outrageous as it did a year ago when, when everything was 2% for what, the last 10 years, you know, 15 years with the, the 10 years anyway, the interest rates have been so low. So they're taking an example, which I think are predatory loans going after parents and, and students who want to get there. But uh, there, is, there are places you go, like these small colleges in Pennsylvania, they're great colleges. They don't have big endowments. They've got 2,000 people on campus. Go to the University of Pennsylvania, there's 25,000 students, 50,000. People that graduate there, on, for the most part, earn, earn something like $1.7 million. They will put a lot of money back into their school. So those kids get into the school, back into school. So they get back into Princeton. The endowments grow. But there's a lot of schools that just live off their tuition, that do some fundraising, you know, middle-class schools. They don't have the endowment to lead on. And I just think that to go ahead and circumvent the committee process, don't bring it up to the uh, the House. Don't bring up legislation to the Senate. Don't ask people to vote on it, work on it. Don't ask people to amend it. But do something you know you can't do that Nancy Pelosi said was impossible, and just say, by the power vested in my big pen, I'm going to forgive student loans, and it's going to cost the American people $500 billion. And by the way, I'm going to freeze payments for two and a half years. If I, if I open it, let's say I'm 28 years old, I'm tired of being a waiter and a bartender, I'm going to go take out a loan and be an owner for the first time in a restaurant. I get slammed by the pandemic for the last two years. I have no business left. I got loans that I owe. Why does that person not get their loan forgiven? And why does the student get their loan forgiven? 
So there's a way to do it. And that's really what the, the Supreme Court justices were saying yesterday. Why would you throw this at me? Why do I have to make the decision? Why didn't you put it through Congress? Can you guys agree and work on anything productive and not political? Dean, listen on WABC. Hey, Dean. <laughs> you just stole my thunder. That's exactly what I was going to say. There's no reason for the president to be even involved in this except for being on his bully puppet uh, telling uh, the Congress that he'd like this to be done. All the decisions should be coming from Congress on spending money. The president has nothing to do with this except to be talking about it. He cannot make that decision on his own. The people should go to Congress, tell them what they want. It will die in Congress, in the House of Representatives, where it's supposed to die. It's ridiculous what he's trying to do. It's just absurd. Listen, I agree with you. You know it. You just said it. But I'm going to give you the other side. Listen to an unhinged UFT president, Randy Weingarten, cut 17. During the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair, and that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. Did she convince you? No, not at all, because <laughs> I got uh, money from this PPP thing. I own my own business. I gave it back. I didn't take it. It's disgusting, and we are responsible for this. By we, I mean the people of the United States. You don't take that stuff. Government handouts are drug dealers. That's what they're doing to us. They want to take control of the small businesses, and when the small businesses are taken control of, they won because they got everything else. They got the media. They got the Hollywood. They got they got uh, social media. They got Everything, all the colleges, now they want the small businesses. What are they going to do? They're going to give the small businesses money, and us jerks are going to take it. And then what's going to happen? They're going to be dictating to us, which they already do through regulations, like crazy. We are now going to be taken over everything uh, by the government, and then it's over. Then, then hello, China, and you better learn how to speak well, Chinese. I would say this, Dean. Just keep in mind, I think Marco Rubio came up with the PPP thing, and it is yours uh, and it was not your fault or anybody's fault. It was 15 days to slow the spread turned into two years. So the people that were to blame is very simple. It is China, uh, not the people, the government of China. They are the ones to blame for this. They're the ones who should be paid to all our PPP loans. But once we shut down for 15 days, the bureaucracy took over and wouldn't let Trump reopen the way he wanted to. This UFT president was the one who kept schools locked inside of with teachers and did the stupid things six feet apart, which never was based on science. And the people that charted our course that way, who we counted on because they were the smartest kids in the class, uh, they all let us down and then refused to admit they were wrong. Uh, thank you, Dean. Always uh, great to talk to you. Ben, listen, in Michigan. Hey, Ben. Yeah. Hey, Brian. Listen, tell you right now, I'm 71, collect Social Security. 
And number one, people, it is not an entitlement. I paid into it for 40-some years, and believe me, I'll never get back all that I put into it. Number two, Brian, probably one of the biggest reasons Social Security is the way it is right now is because of the 40, 50 years when the U.S. government started borrowing from it, promising to pay it back, never did pay it back. So I say this. Let's take take from some of these these, uh, uh, failed social programs or some of these wasteful uh, other programs that they're putting pouring billions of dollars into. Take that money and throw that back into Social Security and uh, uh, keep the promises that you made years ago saying that we're going to pay the money back to Social Security. That's what I, I, I say. How, let me ask you this. Somebody, how, you're 71? Yes. Could you have, do you think 67 is too old? I mean, is that is that waiting too long? Uh, you know what, Brian? I, I took it early. I took it at 62. Okay. Cause, yeah, because I said, my, my, as my wife told me, she said, hey, you know, you better take the money and run. Uh, and I said, yeah, I'll do it, baby. I, and, and I don't regret that decision. Uh, 67, you know what? I, it's hard to say. Like I said, I took it at 62. Uh, all, all I'm just saying is this, Brian, is like I said, they borrowed from it years and years and years. They, borrowed, they, they supposedly borrowed. No, they didn't borrow. They stole from Social Security Fund and just never paid it back. Left IOUs. Yeah, IOUs. And, you know, okay, where are the IOUs? It's time to pay up. You know, the chickens have come home to roost, U.S. government. So I say, take from these failed programs that they're uh, spending money on and start putting it back into Social Security. That's one way to help uh, solve the problem. I hear you. Thanks so much. Here's a little more from some of the arguments that took place yesterday. Here's uh, Justice Gorsuch talking about fairness. Cut 21. What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't have planned their lives around not seeking loans, um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. I think that's the nature of their argument, in addition to, as you point out, the cost of the FISC. I didn't see anything in the memorandum that dealt with those kinds of questions. And if there is something, I'd be appreciative if you could point me to it. There you go. Uh, Dennis, listen in Salisbury, Vermont. Hey, Dennis. Brian, Brian, um, regarding this student loan forgiveness, how is paying this generation's debt fair to future generations of student loan borrowers? who are not going to uh, be offered this, or are they going to continually be offered the student loan debt forgiveness? And it kind of ties in with slavery reparations. How is giving money to this generation of descendants of African-American slaves going to help future generations of descendants of African-American slaves if the money gets squandered? Well, a couple of things. I I don't think, uh, you know, reparations for things that happened 200 years ago when you can't even prove bloodlines, uh, what if you're two-thirds black, one-third white? What if you're two-thirds black, white, one-third uh, white? Uh, what if uh, half of your family is slave owners, the other one was slaves? And you're going back generations, it's impossible to detect, nor, nor do we have the money to do it, nor does it benefit anyone to be looked at as a victim and be paid off for something we had nothing to do with. On the student loan situation, what they're trying to say is after the pandemic, people were hopelessly caught in debt. But I now, after being suspending all the payments for two years, that is enough. It's not like we didn't address the students. I think you agree with that. Orange Park, Florida is where we find Tara. Hey, Tara. Hello. Um, I married a naval aviator. He got out. He went to medical school. We went to medical school at age 36. Um, he's 60 now. I'm 55. 
we're still paying those student loans. You can defer your student loan until you can start to pay for it. We also consolidated our loans down to 2.3. There are plenty of programs for people. I, I did also it. have a senior. I, I deterred exactly. it. I, I was a military, but I remember I, I moved out to California and I, I had to cut my budget down and I was paying every month and I said, listen, I need off. They go, how long? I think I got, I think I got 12 months. So I, by the time I got back, my payments were greater, but I needed that break. And you can go up to a bank and ask. Exactly. And they, everything's a business. I also have a senior in college right now. And she had to be tutored because the schools did not help us. And we moved all around um, with our three children. The oldest is 30, the youngest is 22. Um, I had to have her tutored since kindergarten. And she has struggled her whole, she has been determined her whole life. It makes you stronger when you have to deal with the situations and the obstacles. You scale them and you're stronger for it. Listen, back with more to know and then outnumbered at the top of the hour. Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm on top of the hour. I'm going to be on Outnumbered, but I first want to share with you some other things that, for example, uh, many of us, including you and me, need to know more. More to know. All right, this one, just follow me on this. Tom Brady, I'm not sure this is tongue-in-cheek, is uh, is chasing a stand-up career. Uh, after delaying a year his sports gig on Fox for $300 million plus dollars, uh, Tom Brady has drawn up a game plan for a new career in stand-up. According to sources, quote, Tom was a terrific quarterback, but he needs work before the tossing his idea. Uh, this tossing idea is too late. It's a comic. He's strictly a water boy at a one insider. The Tampa Bucks ego inflated when Jane uh, Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Rita Moreno gushed over him in the recent comedy Flick 80 for Brady. Uh, he does a great impersonation of former teammate Rob Gronkowski, uh, his over-the-top Boston accent, but the overall scattering report is not promising. One of his less-than-funny fumbles that landed with a thud was when one Hollywood comma wrote, comedy writer wrote for him, what did the linebacker say to the flight attendant? Put me in coach. Mm. Other words is he wants a year off to try to get things back together with Giselle. That's the other thing I heard. He may not have the Peyton Manning... Probably funny bone, yeah, but, but yeah, Peyton Manning. The make, things that makes it funny. He's not doing stand up. No, he's funny in he's things he's doing. He's naturally funny. Yes. Next, Jesus Revolution performs miracles at the box office. The faith-based Lionsgate film was forecasted to earn about six to seven million in ticket sales, but walked away from the weekend box office in third place with fifteen million. That's six thousand seven hundred two hundred seventy-two per theater. Despite critical reviews, the movie was awarded an A-plus cinema score and a ninety-nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty cool, right? Next, Chris Rock is going to get his revenge. He's going to have a chance to talk about the slap from Will Smith. He said he would do it at his time. How about Saturday night at 10 o'clock on Netflix? The name of the special is going to be Selective Outrage. Uh, Rock will reportedly speak out about the Will Smith situation. The committee is waiting to spill his humorous guts on it. Will Smith uh, uh, practices Selective Outrage. Rock told a 2,300-strong crowd on Friday, February 17th, in Baltimore, quote, People are who, who are in the know know that uh, blank had nothing to do with me. Rock threw through more stones. He's significantly bigger than me. We will never see me on camera with my shirt off. Will uh, played Muhammad Ali. I played uh, Pookie in 1991's New Jack City. Uh, that's a joke. According to Deadline Report, Rock's previously joked at London's theater. Quote, he played Ali. I couldn't even play Floyd Mayweather. 
So he's making fun of it, and he'll talk about it. But I believe it's Netflix's first live event. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, as far as I know, I don't. I can't remember them actually putting on something that's live at the moment. Seinfeld's going to be on it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I know. I had no idea either. He's got a whole big roster of guests. Reason to watch on Saturday. Uh, right after you watch One Nation at 8. Next. Uh, King Charles, get this, is going to evict Harry and Meghan from Frogmore Cottage. Uh, By the way, he complains about that in his book. He says it's terrible. Uh, The author of Spare, he says Harry's book contained a myriad of sensational allegations, including that Prince William violently shoved him to the floor. Oh, too bad. Brothers fighting. That never happened before. Quote, the eviction surely spells the end of Harry and Meghan's time in UK. They have not been offered an alternative home in the Royals, but they're giving it to Prince Andrew. This guy, isn't this guy disgraced? Yeah. Wasn't he on Epstein's plane? Yeah. Wasn't that his best friend? Yeah, he's been disgraced, but they also say, too, that it's a, a massive downgrade for uh, Andrew being moved to this cottage. Wow, it must be it'd suck living for free on a cottage. <laughs> Next, Vanessa Bryant settles with the L.A. County for 28850000 over the misuse of photos from the helicopter crash that killed his daughter, her daughter, and husband, Kobe. So she gets a lot of money. It will not substitute the, fact, the pain of so actually cycling around those pictures. Uh, as you know, Gianna and Kobe died. Uh, right before the pandemic started, you might remember January 26th of 2020, when it crashed in foggy conditions in Los Angeles, they were going to his daughter's uh, basketball game. Next, Tennessee Titans are dropping off. You see this picture? They drop off recently released players' belongings on his doorstep in garbage bags. How heartless. Shout out to the Titans dropping off my stuff to yesterday, said the player Taylor Lewin. After he got cut to great cap space, he even let me keep the shoulder pads. Uh, Lewin said the team dropped off the belongings in garbage bags. That is classless. And as I mentioned on television, I will definitely never play for the Titans. I I have my uh, I definitely have taken a moral stand. I expect though, if that you know that day comes, I want something a little bit thicker than a, or better than a garbage bag. If you send True. Stuff to my house. Absolutely. Knapsack. Perfect. Uh, listen, happiest city in America for the third consecutive year, a place I'll never go. Fremont, California. Number two, San Jose. Then Madison, Wisconsin, then Overlook Park, Kansas. Then San Francisco rounds out the top five. What about Massapequa, Long Island? I mean, why wasn't that in there? It's outrageous. I'm happy. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.